For the last month, we have been talking about the first commandment, so loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. We've been talking about second commandment, loving your neighbor as yourself. And so today's a little bit linked to that. Now, how do we do this together as a community? For me, like these things, I, I need to kind of be able to order in my mind to know how to, how to go about it because it's all these great ideas. Now, how does it kind of tie together? How does it apply to us? Um, and a lot of what I'll be preaching about today, it also overlaps with what I preached in, in Pusan last week. So if you want to hear a little bit more, uh, you're always welcome to listen to the podcast uh, of what I preached last week. So we're honing in on the two most important things that God has called the church to do, which is love God and love your neighbor. Sometimes we make it very complicated, um, and sometimes we want to throw in all these different things. Uh, but if we throw in a lot of things, everything ends up being unimportant. Does that make sense? Like if everything's important, then everything is unimportant at the same time. Um, so we want to make sure that we are kind of emphasizing strongly two very important things, loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind, and then loving our neighbor as ourself. And everything else is going to kind of branch out from there. This challenges the way that we view love. This challenges the way that we view how we have a capacity to love. Because often how we think about love is like, it's almost like a pie chart. And we're like, okay, if I give this much to the Lord, then I have this much left to give to people. Or like, if I give all of it to the Lord, then I don't have any to give to people, you know? And that's the way that we think about like our capacity to love. But the Bible talks about something very different. And is that the more that you love God, the more that you're able to love people. And the more you love people, the more you're actually living out your faith and loving God at the same time. The Bible talks about, look, you say you love God, but if you hate your neighbor, then you're a liar. You actually don't love God. So challenge like passages like that, that make it super clear that it's not one or the other, but it's both and. So challenges the way that we see uh, love, our ability to love and how these two things feed into one another. So today I'll be preaching on the synergy and the power of loving God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. How loving your neighbor as well feeds into that, and then how together as a church, what it looks like when an entire church kind of takes this upon themselves and moves forward together as one body. So I'll be preaching on uh, from Second Timothy chapter 4, and it reads, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, and instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their hearts away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. So we are going to be going into 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And today's message is titled, Let Us Run. Let us run. Before we dive in, can we pray really quick? Father, we thank you that it is your word that is living and active. 
that it isn't just the words of a preacher, Lord God, that have the power to change our lives. It is the living, breathing, active word of God that is able to pierce our hearts and transform us from the inside out. We thank you, God, for the power of your word, that your word has power to create things in us that weren't there. Your word has power to transform and turn and bend things in us. So God, that need, we need to be reoriented. And your word has the power to wash us clean. We thank you, God, that we can look to your word and we can know, God, that it is accomplishing everything that it's set out to do. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so just like uh, uh, Pastor JP, he briefly mentioned earlier um, um, today in today's service, um, earlier this week, we had a really unique opportunity to go serve at a retreat, and it was a retreat for missionaries. Um, we haven't really talked about it very much because um, it's kind of like on the DL, a lot of it. Um, it is a lot of missionaries that are actually ministering in restricted areas in East Asia. Um, it's safe for me to say that a lot of them are in China, and you guys, if you guys know what's happening in China right now, there's a massive crackdown happening where, like, pastors by the hundreds like are being imprisoned right now um and then there's also people that are ministering in north korea as well uh, people that are laying down their lives they are sacrificing lives of their families you know just in order to see the gospel bearing fruit in an, in in a country that is um massively you know persecuted for all christians um and so in the midst of all the craziness you know that's going on here you know and philly Going there, right? This is not to shame anybody, but going there, I was like so humbled, right? Because like when you're leading worship in front of people who have literally laid down their lives, you know, and they are just crying out for the Lord. They are like, like their life depends on it because it does. And they are like worshiping their hearts out because they know that they won't get this for another year or two. And that is a very realistic expectation of them. To be able to do that and feel that, like, desperation to see God move. Desperation, man, God, if you don't fill me up, I have nothing to give. Like, that does so much to reorient the way that you see ministry, the way that you see heart. Like, dip, the way that you see God's kingdom advancing despite all the persecution. Like, it does so much inside of you to, like, rearrange things within you. And it was like... Man, like, I was physically really tiring, but coming out of it, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. <laughs> like, am I even saved? Like, seeing these people, like, this is how I fight my battles. You know, like, just like, you're like, whoa, people, calm down. You know, but they mean every word that they sing. That just did so much to my spirit. Like, I came out of it like, all right, all right, like, we can do this. All right, like God's grace is sufficient. Like, all right, we all need to lean into the Lord a bit more. We all need to trust in his promises a bit more. We all need to become more abandoned in our worship, in our devotion, in our evangelism, and all these things a bit more. Just came out of it so invigorated, so challenged, humbled. Yes, but just like so invigorated. We're all worshiping that same God, the God that is worthy of laying down your life. And there's people not too far from here that are living this out every single day. Every single day they wake up, they lay down their lives. They're like, I don't know what today will bring. I don't know if today's the day when I'll be dragged off to prison. 
I don't know if today's a day when my visa will be revoked. I don't know if this is a day where there will be a crackdown and my church will be disbanded. But, like, I'm going to lay down my life, and I'm going to assume that today is still a day that you've made, and I'm going to trust in you. And, man, that is just, ah, uh, like, I was just so, so blessed by that. Now, the passage that we're talking about today, Second Timothy, ironically, is not a letter that was penned, you know, in the comfort of a cafe or a study or a library somewhere. This was penned in prison. This is a letter written by Apostle Paul in his, not his first imprisonment, mind you, in his second imprisonment. And this is like after shipwrecks, after people have stoned him to death, and then he, like, miraculously, he just makes it out alive. Like, after all these crazy things happen to him, he knows that he's close to the end of his life at this point. He knows that something has changed. He knows that his time is short. And this is a letter that is written from prison to Timothy, and it is written in a cold dungeon away from people who support him. He's alone and chained like a common criminal. He knows that his life is coming to a close. At this point, he's, he's like put his full trust, full hope in the Lord. Like all of it. After everything that he's gone through, his utter dependence on God. You can hear it in just every verse that you read from Second Timothy. And leading up to the passage that we just read... In, for example, in starting in chapter 3, after he talks about, like, like, you need to work hard for the kingdom, but God will enable you. You need to do a lot of different things that you've been called to do as your task and as your calling, but God's power will be there for you. After he says all these different things for two chapters, in chapter 3, he brings some bad news. And he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. So he's saying, look, things are going to be a lot harder from here on out. And not just that, but people around you will change as well. This is really important for us to note because we need to understand that Paul is on his way out. He's saying, this might be my last letter. And I need to make darn well sure that Timothy is not counting on me to be here for the next 20 years. Things around him are going to change and he needs to know that. And he needs to not be swayed by that. He needs to anchor his hope, anchor his trust, anchor in person that is quickly coming. Much more enduring, much more permanent, much more eternal than just a life of one person that is quickly coming to a close. And this is what he says to Timothy. He says, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. So he's saying, People around you will change, but you've seen me live a very different kind of life. You've witnessed, you've had, the, you've had the privilege of witnessing a life lived very differently. Remember this when things begin to shift around you. Remember that I've lived a life that has been poured out for the gospel and have zero regrets, even as my life is coming to a close. Do not forget this, especially when the benchmark, when the 
reference point around you begins to change. Because this is the way that we normally operate as people. We don't base our faith on the word. Like most people. We base our faith on the faith of people around us. You always have that one really holy friend, right? That really holy friend. And you're like, look, as well as I'm like relatively close to that person or like kind of, you know, around the same range, then I'm doing amazing. And then we also have that other friend, right? That friend where you're like, oh, as long as I'm not doing as bad as them, then I'm in pretty good shape, right? We tend to use other people as a benchmark, right? And then we assume that that speaks about our own faith. That assumes that that's kind of like where we're at. That's our reference point, not the word. Uh, this is something very challenging for, for all of us. And even as a community, the last year, we've gone through so much changes, right? And different people departing, different people coming in. In the midst of it, one of the recurring things that I've heard from different people has been, like, I thought I, thought I was strong in my faith. And then I realized that it was pegged on someone else. It was pegged on how the church is doing. It was pegged on how my CG was doing. It was pegged on certain people being a part of my life. And all of a sudden, I realized that I cannot, I cannot anchor my faith on that anymore. And now it's my time to get reacquainted with the Lord once again. It's time to go back into the word once again. It's time to go back into my prayer closet once again. And I've been hearing this over and over again. And this is an incredible, incredible opportunity for us to realize, okay, so maybe my faith was pegged on something else. Now this is time to redirect it on what it needs to be anchored in, right? He, uh, uh, Apostle Paul continues to say, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So things will get harder around you. The standards will get worse around you. And you have to picture it this way, right? There is going to be something in you that says, this is totally unfair. Like, this is totally unfair. So because this is what is happening. Let me give this as an example to you. If you have siblings growing up, who, who here has siblings? All right. Okay. Okay. Oh, so the vast majority of you guys. Okay. So if you had siblings and you grew up with siblings around you, imagine you are both doing something that you shouldn't have been doing, but only you get in trouble for it. Right? Wow. Some people are like, uh-huh. Oh my gosh. Like everything. And he's like, that is so not fair. So not fair. If I'm getting in trouble, you're coming down with me. And that's when you become a tattletale, right? So... Like everything in you is like, that is not fair. If I'm going to get in trouble, you better get in trouble too, right? Now let's, let's make it a little bit more serious. Imagine you are doing something to break the law. Like imagine you're speeding like 20 over the speed limit, right? You're speeding and you're looking at someone speeding like 30 over and only you get pulled over, right? Everything's in you like, but officer, you should have seen that person. They were going 30 over. You should... Go, you, right now you can still catch them, you know? Everything in you will say, man, that is so unfair. Like, I was doing something bad, yeah, but they're doing something worse. It's unfair, right? Like, you need to go after them. They're the real delinquent, right? So everything in you wants to say, like, man, this is unfair. Like, I'm so unfairly, I'm unfairly um, accused of something, right? So imagine you aren't doing something wrong, but you're actually doing something right. You're doing something right. You were keeping the law. And you still get in trouble. 
while people who are actually breaking the law are getting off scot-free. So it's, it's not just like, I'm a sinner and you're a sinner too, and we should both get in trouble. It's like, I'm actually doing everything right. I'm actually like standing for the gospel. I'm actually fighting hard for the kingdom. And yet I'm the one who's getting persecuted while people who want nothing to do with God, they're the ones who seem to be getting ahead in life. They're the ones getting the promotions. They're the ones who seem to have a thriving, flourishing life. Everything in you is going to say, this is so unfair. And that's the whole point. That's what Paul is trying to point to. It is going to feel unfair. Everything in you will want justice. Everything in you will say, that's foul play. That's not fair. That's not right. How am I being treated this way? How am I getting this? And then Paul continues on to say, but as for you, but as for you, he keeps saying this over and over again, all throughout second Timothy He says, this is going to be happening in the world, but as for you, this is going to be happening in the world, but as for you, he says this over and over and over again. He says, but as for you continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He's basically saying, look, Timothy, things are going to get hard around you. And when that moment comes, you cannot even be looking to me to set example for you. You need to be looking at the word. The word, even then, will still have the power. The word, even then, will be God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training for righteousness. You'll have everything you need. You'll have everything you need to face those persecutions, to face those unfair situations. He's asking Timothy to remain grounded on the word of God long after Paul is dead and gone, long after he's written his last letter, long after he's been martyred. He's asking Timothy, you better be grounded in the word of God. Things around you are going to change. All the things that you're looking to as a reference point, those things are going to shift. It's, it's going to be very subtle in the beginning, Everything around you is going to shift and your reference point is going to change. So you better be grounded in the word. In other words, when we are looking throughout this entire section, Paul is saying, look, things around you are going to get worse. But as for you, as for you, as for you, stick to the gospel, stick to the truth. Even when they stop liking you, stick to the truth. Even when it doesn't get you more friends, more followers, more whatever, more likes, stick to the truth, even if they begin to hate you. And even when they begin to persecute you and they come after your family, they come after your church, but as for you stick to the truth. And the question is how or why? And this is where we come to our text. This is really, really important for us to understand why we're able to do this. It is in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, not in the presence of your pastor, not in the presence of your friends, not in the presence of your family or your followers or your supporters. It is in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. This is such an important, such an important uh, truth for us to hold on to, especially today in an age where we live in a very postmodern kind of world, Right. Everybody say is equal. The louder you say it, the more true it must be. The more followers or shares you get on internet, the more true it must be. The more 
people are in agreement, the more true it must be. We live in a very postmodern world where it's like mob mentality on steroids. It's like it's, it's the tyranny of the masses, right? What the majority believes is true must be true. And it's going to get harder and harder to discern. And it needs to be said that the only person before we are living, the only person that we're going to be held accountable by is God. It is God. It is not in people around you. It is not in your church. It is not in your friends, your workplace. It is before God and God alone. He is the one who will judge the living and the dead. Translation, God is taking note and his opinion is the only one that matters at the end of the day. Period. Period. That is it. It only matters what God thinks of you. Really. It doesn't matter what you, I mean, it matters what your family thinks of you, right? It matters what people think of you. But at the end of the day, the only person whose opinion matters, the only person who's going to weigh your life and see if it was a life well lived is God. On, when the day of reckoning comes, it doesn't matter what your mama says, what your pastor says, what your friends say. It only matters what God says, no matter how many people pat you in the back, no matter how popular you are, no matter how many people are following every word you say. It doesn't matter. It is only God who will be the judge of a life well-lived. It is God whose opinion matters. And in view of his appearing and his kingdom. Translation, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And the kingdom that he inaugurated at his first coming will be consummated at his second coming. And all the injustice, all the wrongdoing, all the evil that went unpunished will finally be justly dealt with. That day will come. All the things that seemed so important back then, all the hidden and also all the hidden works of faithfulness, all the things that you did in secret, but nobody ever knew, nobody ever applauded. Those things will be rewarded. All the things that went uncelebrated, unfeatured, all those moments when you could have taken the easy way out and yet you chose to choose God again, all those times will be rewarded. When you could have gone the path of least resistance, and yet you chose God when it cost you everything. Those things that seem so trivial in the eyes of the world, those things that were presented, uh, those things will be presented before him like God, like gold refined in the fire. Jesus is coming and his kingdom will come with him as well. And in light of these things, Paul gives Timothy this exhortation, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and instruction. This means preach the word, proclaim the word, live out the word, live out the gospel. No matter who's watching, no matter whether you get a fair warning or not, no matter whether you get to prepare or not, no matter if you get applauded or gospel, congratulated or patted in the back, it doesn't matter. Live and preach and breathe this gospel. Correct, rebuke, and encourage, not just with great passion and zeal and recklessness, but with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Even teachers, even teachers, even people that you look to for instruction, 
and for counsel. Even those people will begin to preach and teach what people want to hear. This is the fear of man, right? People will begin to cater to what is popular, to what people actually want to hear and will not stick to the word. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Again, but you. It is almost a very insensitive thing that Apostle Paul is saying here. He's basically saying, whatever other people do around you, that is none of your business. Don't worry about that. It'll be judged. Don't worry about that. But as for you, you take care of what you need to do. Don't base what you're doing around what people around what people are doing around you. But as for you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. They will not want to hear the truth. They will not want their interests challenged. They will not want to hear what God says unless it lines up with their own personal agendas. But you, but you remain grounded in the word. Live out the gospel, even when it is costly. And then he says, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I've kept the faith. It's like he's saying, remember what you've seen in my life. Long after I'm gone, remember the kind of life that I've lived. When people around you change, remember that there was, you've seen someone make it to the end. You've seen someone bear the cost of the gospel and still do it with joy and do it all the way to the end. You've seen what it looks like to pour out everything you are, everything you have, to lay down everything that the world treasures in order to embrace what heaven applauds. You've seen a life lived differently and now it's your turn. That's what he's saying. Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. There is a reward, even though we cannot see it yet. There is a crown of righteousness. A righteousness that is not born through times of ease and pleasant circumstances, but through trials and persecutions and discouragement and frustrations and setbacks and falling and getting back up again. Of fighting temptation. Of choosing what is good instead of choosing what is easy. And this crown of righteousness is not just for Paul, it's not just for Timothy, but it's for all who have longed for his appearing. Those who in their suffering cry out, how much longer, God? And those who in their longing ask, how much longer, God, until we are together? Those whose hope isn't in the world, but in the one who is called the desire of the nations, the hope of creation. And I prepared a few pictures just to give you a mental image of what this looks like. I'm not athletic in any way, shape, or form. So this is all thanks to Google. But this is what a marathon looks like, right? This is the beginning of a marathon, right? Everybody's smiling. Shoes are shiny. Faces are dry, you know? everybody's looking so great. Everybody's in good spirits. And as they start, man, it's like a wall of humanity, just like, you know, rushing forward. The numbers are endless. Can I show you what it looks like at the finish line? Right? This is what it looks like at the finish line. This is what 
it looks like once all the smiles are gone and the shoes aren't shiny anymore and faces aren't dry anymore, where have the crowds gone, right? Where, where have all the people, that wall of humanity, where have they gone? Now, faces are sweaty, clothes are drenched. And I'm like that, that dude in the middle, right? Limping, like barely making it through to the end, like broken, tired. And sometimes we need brothers and sisters to carry you through this way. Like, have you noticed how Apostle Paul, he starts and ends all of his epistles, all of his letters by thanking people and acknowledging them, right? It is not a formality. It is not like ladies and gentlemen, you know, distinguished guests. Like, it is not a formality. It is proof that there is not one self-made, self-sustaining, self-reliant Christian in the world. There is no such thing. Even someone as gangsta as Paul, even he wasn't just a standalone, like, Lone Ranger Christian. He needed community around him. He needed to be carried like this from time to time as well. And this is like such a beautiful picture of what it looks like to have brothers and sisters hold you up. Man, this, this was, this, I mean, this still is me being carried by people around me. Like, can I be vulnerable just for a bit? Like in the last year, if I didn't have people around me like this, I would not have made it. Like for sure, for sure. There are people around me who checked in on me. There are people around me who prayed for me when I didn't ask them for prayer. There are people around me who asked me if I was okay, asked how can I serve? Do you need time off? How can I help? How can I serve? How can I pray for you? Like those are people who held me up when I just had no strength to go on. This, this was me. This is still me. This is all of us. We can't just run this race alone. We need brothers and sisters around us to hold us up and to encourage us, to remind us that there's still ways to go, that we're not done yet, that the race is yet to be finished and we're going to make it all the way to the very end. I'm going to show you one more picture. This is, you know, the picture of the first runner that made it through. That is incredible timing, by the way, right? Two hours and 10 minutes for a marathon. Anyway, what I love about this picture, though, isn't that it's like, oh, it's like the, the winner. It's like the, you know, the triumphant person. What I love about this picture is that you see the crowds waiting at the finish line. Isn't that like an amazing, amazing picture? There's people who are waiting at the finish line. Their hearts are pounding. They're cheering you on. Just like one more step. Just one more step. You're almost there. They're holding their breath, just waiting for you to make it all the way to the finish line. And this picture reminds me of this verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. This reminds me, this reminds me that this road has been marked out by people who had gone before us. You're not the first person to go through trials. 
You're not the first person to bear persecution for the name of Jesus. You're not the first person who's facing difficulties and decisions and setbacks and disillusionments. This road has been marked out for us by the millions upon millions of saints that have gone before us. And now they are there holding their breath, watching you run this race. They're cheering you on, hoping that you'll make it all the way to the finish line. So that's why we throw off everything that hinders. That means everything that slows you down. Doesn't necessarily need to be a sin per se. Just things that slow you down. Things that might be permissible but not beneficial. Things that slow you down. And then also we throw off the sin that easily entangles. So the things that trip you up. The things that break your stride. And from there, we run together. It's not let me run. It's let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. It is marked out for us. The first forerunner, his name was Jesus Christ. He ran this race before even all the saints of old. And we have a spiritual lineage since the beginning of time. The Davids, the Peters, the Esthers, the Marys, the Pauls, all these people that went before us, the countless nameless missionaries that daily laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel, Believers that have gone before us, that are being poured out like a drink offering even right now. They have fought the good fight. They have finished the race. And now it's our turn. It's our turn to run this race and run it together. The text doesn't just say run. It says run with perseverance. It means perseverance will be required. It means you're going to have to push through some things. Otherwise, you don't need perseverance. It means there's going to be resistance. That's why you need perseverance. There's going to be hardship, even failure. But you need to run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. If you fall, you get back up again with greater resolve and you push through discouragement and disillusionment. And from here, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Again, let us together, not let me, let us, let us as a community fix our eyes on Jesus. It is the collective Focusing on one singular object of affection. The collective fixed and focused on one object of worship. This is what biblical unity looks like. It doesn't look like uniformity. It doesn't look like you talk the same way. You wear the same clothes. You sound the same way. You listen to the same Christian music. That's not what biblical unity is. Biblical unity, it means As different as we are, and we are all very different, as different as we are, the one thing that unites us is the person that we worship, and that is Jesus Christ. So this is what the Bible defines as unity, being one in heart. It isn't uniformity. It isn't taking on the same customs or habits or lingo. It means we all fix our eyes on the singular object of affection and worship, and his name is Jesus. And he is both the pioneer, so the creator, the author, and also the developer and the cultivator of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the walk that he walked. He This is what carried him through the cross and the shame, the betrayal, the humiliation. It wasn't his discipline, although he had great discipline. It wasn't his personality type. I'm sure he he had a great personality. It wasn't his selflessness, although he was selfless. It was the joy 
that was set before him, that carried him through, even through the scorn and the shame and the humiliation. He was possessed with a vision. He was possessed with a vision, a dream, a goal, a finish point, an end purpose, a reward. He could see the vision of a bride ransom for his name and his renown. He could see a vision of sons and daughters coming home. He could see a vision of men and women of God finding forgiveness, finding hope in him. He could see a vision of a time when God will dwell with man once again. He had a vision of this, and that was the joy that was set before him. And from this place, we consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We consider, we ponder, we ruminate on, we obsess over, we churn over in our mind as we run this race during those moments when your feet feel light and you feel like you could go on forever. And also those moments when you feel like you just cannot take another step, like you cannot, you cannot, you cannot go another day. Even in those moments, you consider him who endured opposition from sinful men so that you do not grow weary or lose heart. We remember him. We fix our eyes on him. We do not lose sight of him. We stay grounded and anchored in that place of beholding him who ran the race before us and who won it on our behalf already. And we call upon him. We draw from his power. We draw from his strength. We get caught up with his vision for his church, his bride. And we feel a renewed strength and hope and joy as we run this race. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is both inspiration and this is also the prize. Jesus Christ. He's the author of your faith. He's a perfecter of your faith. And he ran this race with the fullness of joy in his heart. Thinking of the bride that he secured in you and I. And the inheritance that awaits on him. Waits for him on that day. And he, right now he sits at the right hand of God the Father at that finish line waiting for you and I to make it. He's cheering and interceding for you and I to make it. All the way to the very end. This is why we do not grow weary. This is why we do not lose heart. The Lamb of God has overcome. He has defeated sin and death and shame. And he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he will have his reward in us. He will see to it that his church comes to him on that day white, without spot or wrinkle. A bride that isn't unequally yoked to the bridegroom, but a bride that has been tested, tried, purified by the fire, washed in the blood, and a church that will give him all the glory. That is what he's after, and that is the joy of his heart. That is the joy of his heart, and that is the joy of our heart as well. This is a church that we ought to envision. Not a church just that just makes it through, you know, relatively okay, and we have a relatively good number of people, and we meet every week, there's something so much more glorious that God is after. Like a vision that is so much more compelling that, that God is after and we ought to be after. And I want to end with this. This past week while we were ministering at this retreat with, um, you know, with different missionaries that are out in the mission field. And they're, man, like crazy, crazy people doing crazy things for the kingdom. In the midst of that, 
as humbled as I was, I had this moment of, like, I feel like I'm getting a glimpse of what God is after and what role Nephili plays within all of this. It's like I, I got a moment of clarity. I just felt like this is why we've been spared. Like, there's still something that we have to contribute to the body of Christ. There's something, and as, as JP was sharing earlier today, even something that includes our pain, includes our journey, our story, that is setting things up for us to contribute something very unique to the body of Christ. As unworthy as I felt, you know, serving those kind of Christians and those kind of people, at the same time, I felt this reassurance that, man, like there's, there's a task for us ahead. And there's a role that Nephili has to play as a body of Christ. This is why the body of Christ needs Nephili to make it as well. And I'm not saying this to kind of like pressure us or guilt us, you know, or make us feel like, okay, we have no choice. Like, no, it's like to inspire you. There is a task and a calling that Nephili has as a church. And I felt like this week I got a glimpse of that. There's something that we have to contribute to the body of Christ. Even when it feels like, man, we're going through our own thing. Like, what, what are we going to serve other people with? Like, let's just make it through. That's, that's, not, that's not the story that God is writing out for us. God is forging in us a very particular story, a very particular way of leaning into God, a very particular way in which we depend on God because we have no choice. Our story is setting us up for something that we don't fully see just now. But I feel like we're getting glimpses here and there of what God is after. And I feel like more than ever, God is forging in us a cry of dependence. And the way that we worship, the way that we trust, the way that we savor his goodness, the way that we choose to believe in him over and over again, the way that we cling on to hope, all of this is part of our story. And all of this is setting us up for something very particular to contribute to, to the greater body of Christ. That is what God is after. That is what God is after. The world has seen enough of churches and people who are benefiting so much from whatever it is that we are kind of trumpeting and championing. But the world has yet to see or longs to see people who even at the cost of sacrifice, at the cost of inconvenience, at the cost of their personal agendas, at the cost of all this are able to joyfully run this race and run it without any regrets. Run it like at the end of the day, we can say, I poured myself out. I have no regrets. I've run this race and I have no regrets. It was a joy. It was a joy to run this race for God. It was a joy to bear that suffering for God. It is a joy to get to that finish line and get my reward in God as well. That is what God is after in this church. The Lord, he has done it already. He has made a way for us. And the prize is worth it. The prize is worth it. The suffering is temporary, right? And the time is short. The time is much shorter than we think. The time is short. Let us run together as a family. Let us see what is possible when we as a community choose to love him and love one another 
with everything that we have and run this race for as long as God will allow us to. Amen?